Hey folks, quick message before we start things off on today's episode. Here at The Outside Tapes, we are always thrilled to connect with fellow creators and bring you guys the best in audio dramas and podcasts. For that reason, it is our absolute joy to be able to tell you a little bit about Little Town of Rainbow. Little Town of Rainbow is a fantastically produced audio drama that just recently started up. Set in the 1880s, it follows a starving man who awakens in a mysterious town of soothsayers, shamans, and all manner of occultists. It's a really remarkable show that will pull you head over heels into its universe, so without further ado, please enjoy this clip from Little Town of Rainbow, and I'll talk to you later. At the altar, a man with silver hair dressed in a black robe, with rainbow patches on each shoulder, chanted some cryptic phrases while kneeling. The smell of incense was heavy and made a cloud around the room. I took a step forward, making sure to stumble and then proceeded to fall into one of the pews. For good measure, I put on a show of dazed confusion. A few people helped me to my feet, and one person said, This man is already being made clean. The spirits are fleeing from him. Posing as an ignoramus, I fervently nodded. My body began to shake, and my fingers twitched as I made my way to the altar, giving them the present every heathen desires most, their righteous holiness. This has been The Little Town of Rainbow. New episodes are released weekly and is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like The Little Town of Rainbow, please share with your friends. It helps independent creators to reach an audience and continue to tell stories for free. Thank you. Tape 6. A Damned Voyage. Right. Discovery of a copy of a removed chapter from Raymond Newcomb's Our Lost Explorers, published 1882. It's been a strange few days, and considering what the last month or two have been like for me, that is a big statement. The first few days after the recording of my last tape, I did very little. The story about Vincent Cooper had rattled me a little, I'll admit, and I wasn't sure what to do next. What happened next certainly helped my productivity, to be fair, but my unease at this entire situation has been worsened. I was still in Maine after the whole Olwyn Point Lighthouse investigation, and I'd decided to stay overnight in a small motel in the north of the state. I do that occasionally. Much as I've grown used to my van, it's worth eating into my funds occasionally to have slightly more room and a proper wash. When checking out in the morning, I was told a message had been left at reception for me, specifically me, by name by what was described to me as a medium-height man with dark hair and a suit, which isn't even close to helpful. The message was a note with an address in New Hampshire. Scribbled next to it were the words, Ask about the Godwin extract. I have no idea who left this to me. I have no idea how they knew it would be of significant help to my research, and I have no idea how they knew where I was. No use speculating. I will just need to be careful. 
I somewhat hesitantly made the journey and arrived to a small bungalow in the back end of the countryside. I was greeted by a small man who I'd hazard was in his fifties, who, despite his initial unease about me, immediately let me into his home upon my asking about the Godwin extract. The man's name was Oscar Cousins, and in his spare time, he apparently collects curious historical artefacts. The Godwin extract is one of particular pride to him. In 1882, a survivor of a failed polar voyage named Raymond Newcomb published his journals and accounts from other crew members, the book I mentioned. The following is one such additional statement from Samuel Godman, assistant navigator aboard the voyage. The publishers of the collection refused to include it, understandably believing Newcomb to have fabricated it. A few copies exist, and one was auctioned off by a small museum to be purchased by Oscar Cousins in 2009, who is eager to let me share in his fascination. It will be clear when I record this why it is relevant to my investigations. Begin reading. Mr. Newcomb, it is now my dearest wish that you should make it known that this tremendous failure was the fault of no man. There were those upon our expedition, those among your survivors, who will rave and cast blame, often upon the dead. I say this to prevent that injustice, and to make clear that this journey must not be attempted again under any circumstances. Our voyage was damned, Mr. Newcomb. Those who follow us must not assume the role of mistakes we made in our lack of success. We took every caution and were no less doomed for it. I ask you to bear this message as I am under no illusion as to the end that awaits me in the next days. I am aware, of course, that my assessment of whatever damned us is of no importance to you. What you wish to understand is the fact that I am alive, where those you last saw me with are not. I regret that I could not answer you immediately, but my voice fails me, and I can at least save you the tribulation of transcribing my tale yourself. Forgive the mistakes, and forgive the sloping of my writing. I will begin at the reason for my appointment to the USS Jeanette. My role was that of an aide to our navigator, John Wilson Donenhauer. I was selected from a list of applicants as one of three assistants, and due to the perilous importance of navigation in a voyage such as this one, it was made clear to us that we were to ensure no mistaken decisions would be made by Mr. Donenhauer. The voyage, as well you know, was undertaken with the intention to discover passage to the open polar sea, that fabled body of water which surrounds the northernmost point of this earth. I confess to a considerable feeling of apprehension in the weeks leading to our departure. Much as my attention and enthusiasm were aroused by the ship's possession of Edison's electric lamps and while well, by the thought of being among those to discover a gate to the open polar sea, I was fearful of how many expeditions before ours had been unsuccessful. We possessed every confidence in success, and yet I thought, had not every drowned sailor before us felt that same conviction. It was in these days of preparation, excitement, and dread that I first encountered Michael Stobart, a navy man who was to serve as a ship hand on the Jeanette. He struck me even then as a man who seemed to be of a singular strangeness. At first, I thought him a quiet man who enjoyed his own company. This is not a rare disposition among those in our profession, nor have I any personal problem with such men. But if anyone was to engage Mr. Stobart in conversation, he would eagerly and with great enthusiasm join the discussion. He had a great many stories to tell, but never without one of us others prompting him to tell it. The manner of his speech was, on a small level, a matter of some unease to me. As I said, he conducted his stories with a great energy and emotion, but it seemed on occasion to be a sight more than was necessary. 
It was not, I thought, that he was a boisterous man, determined to impress his ability and experience upon us in some arrogance. It appeared more as if Stobart was set upon convincing those around him of this enthusiasm in itself. He did not, I believe, truly feel the remarkable emotion he presented to us. I resolved to avoid Mr. Stobart's company when the voyage began. This would, for a time, prove an easy strategy to uphold. As I have said, he was not a man to initiate conversation with any of us. Our eventual departure was, to my surprise, quite an excellent relief to my troubled mind. The ocean had, for as long as I had known it, been possessed of a powerful ability to calm those upon it. Worry was without reason now. I was aboard the USS Jeanette, and that was simply that. In those early days, a spirit of optimism was certainly present with all of us. We were to forge a new path north. We would be returning to a heroic welcome to our homes before long. By the latter days of August, the ship reached the port of St. Michael, and upon the 31st day of that month, we departed north towards Rangel's land, an important island to pass on our journey and where Captain DeLong hoped to perhaps weather out the winter. I have little cause to retell the suffering on the ice to the south of Rangos. It is all known to you and to the other survivors. Don and Howard's worsening health and incapacitation, the time in excess of a year drifting in perfect solitude, the pain of knowing our voyage to be a mistake and the open polar sea a myth. I will move my tale, for these are memories not dear to either of us, Mr. Newcomb. In May of 1881, we spotted land in the distance and rejoiced. We cared little for the discovery of new land and geographical concerns were of little real consolation, but I confessed the idea of planting my feet on ground which would not shift and roll was one that appealed greatly to my tortured spirit. Our relief and joy was profound and yet fleeting. After a moment's ecstasy, as the Jeanette broke free, the blasted ice returned with strong momentum and finally breached our hull. The captain ordered an evacuation. The ice, perhaps in an elusive moment of natural solidarity, slowed the sinking of our vessel, enough for us to board the sleds with all men, equipment, and provisions. The captain decided the thing for it was to precipitate south by dog sled, hoping we might happen upon the new Siberian islands, charted land from which we navigators' assistants might be able to plot a course to Siberia. Our southward progress was at first useless. The ice began to drift in opposition to us, and by June we were further north than we had been when our journey by sled had begun. The drift eventually shifted to a more agreeable movement, and by June we discovered yet another uncharted island and paused to rest. You will recall that the captain named the land Bennett Island. It was upon Bennett Island that the strangeness of my tale began in earnest. It was the fourth night of August, not two days before we intended to break south upon the ice once more. I had grown restless in the night, and my fitful sleep and uneasy dreams had driven me to seek solace by walking some of the distance of the perimeter of the island. I had just rounded the cape upon which we had settled when I felt a sudden and vicious agony in my head, as nothing I'd felt in my years. I screwed my eyes tightly shut, unable even to scream, and when I opened them, I was not where I had been standing. It was as if I had fallen asleep and still carried myself for perhaps what distance I could cover in two hours of walking. I did not recognize my surroundings, and the terrible ache I had felt had only subsided in the slightest. This, as well as the lateness of the hour and the cold that suddenly chilled me, filled me with a sense of unease with which I hope you are not familiar. I stood in a rocky area above a steep cliff face, peering over the ledge slightly. 
It was only a few yards downwards to the ice, but I possessed no desire to shatter any of my limbs against the hard surface or, worse, break through into the cold water and incapacitate myself with hypothermia. As I stepped swiftly away from this possibility, I caught a glimpse of a small hole a short distance down the rock face. It kindled in me the memory of the nesting places of puffins that one might see, a small crevice into which a man's arm may fit. I did not afford myself the time to think on it, nor the lunacy to believe the hole to be man-made, but I am now certain it must have been. Nevertheless, as I attempted to calm myself, having removed myself from this precarious position, I became aware of what had, likely, roused me from whatever reverie I had entered, the calling of my name. I recognized the voice easily, it was Henry Wilford, a fellow assistant navigator and a man with whom I had become good friends. He expressed his sincerest and most genuine relief that I was still alive and healthy. I had, he was quick to tell me, been gone for four hours. We hastened to return to the camp. As we reached home, I am convinced that I recall the curious Michael Stobart to have been staring at me in every moment that I was not facing him. I quickly forgot this concern as I was to receive a stern tongue lashing from Captain DeLong for my recklessness. In light of what was to happen next, it would not be unreasonable for me to believe I was correct about Mr. Stobart's apparent fixation. I cast that night's activities from my mind, as I had far greater concerns. We faced a long, arduous journey across uncharted lands in the coming days, and as such, I was in the mind to disregard my own troubled night in sleepwalking. The small hidden crevice? That too was of a supreme unimportance. The ice was by now loose and beginning to crack. For this reason, the captain determined to transfer our provisions to the boats, with which we would continue. In those days, I was one of many who felt as if our voyage was emerging back into the light. It did not take long for us to spot the most eastern of the New Siberian Isles in the distance. From there, a brief journey to the Lena Delta, a settled region in Russia where we might find shelter and food. We made quick progress across the sea at this stage, buoyed by our risen spirits, and by September the 12th, we made our final rest upon Semenovsky Isle. From this land, we expected the final stage of this journey to Russia to perhaps last two nights. There were three boats, upon the smallest of which, you may remember, I was stationed under the command of Officer Charles W. Chip. Our plan of action was to set out as one, and in the event that we were separated, each of the three vessels was to aim for the settlement of Boulogne, from whichever point on the coast we may reach. Necessity dictated that each boat would be provided with one of us three assistants, and as such, I was not sent with my good friend Henry. Officer Chip had seemed to be a good man and an able officer throughout our voyage, and the smaller cutter we embarked upon seems seaworthy. As such, my only concerns stemmed from the company I found myself in, namely Michael Stobart. By this time, I was no longer alone in noticing his prying glances and fixed stares, but none of the nine men on my vessel were those who shared my discomfort about him. I resolved again to ignore him, and to hope again that the issue would not come to any head. Our three vessels made good progress in the early hours of the crossing. Captain DeLong shouted to us that it might be that we would reach the shore within a day. It is perhaps true that we should have known our fortunes would turn, as they had most relentlessly done since our departing of Alaska. Within hours, the glassiness of the ocean had been replaced with thunderous waves, and I could not say nor bring myself to care for whether it was rain or spray that blinded us. Whatever the case, we soon lost sight of each other, and this was the last time any of the rest of the crew saw our vessel or its inhabitants. I will admit that we spared little thought for the well-being of all of you, 
Our concern was spent upon our own peril. It took commendable effort from all on board to keep the boat from floundering, and even with this effort, we suffered poor losses. Five of our number were thrown overboard by the swell, leaving myself, Stobart, a small and quiet crew member by the name of Wilbur Harriet, and Officer Chip himself, who had been thrown to the back of the cutter and dealt a severe blow to the head. By morning, the storm had retreated, and the sea was yet again a flat, glassy expanse before us. We could not see any of the other vessels, and had not, it seemed, been blown any closer to the shoreline. Some of my instruments were intact, and so a still bleary and intermittently conscious Officer Chip ordered me to chart a course to the south. As I began to gather my thoughts and begin my work, I felt the beginnings of that now familiar burning ache in my head. I went still with eyes shut as the agony washed through me, and just as before, when I opened them, hours had passed. I felt a degree of panic come over me as I estimated that in my fugue I had directed us on a course that had led nigh on the entire way north to Bennett Island. Officer Chip, still drifting in and out of his unconscious state, had noticed nothing. Stobart was still sitting there, unmoving, staring at me without a word. Harriet was not to be seen on the vessel. At the time, it was my assumption that Stobart had, for reasons unknown desiring I was not to be disturbed, disposed in some manner of the unfortunate ship hand. There is little I recall from that time, but the momentary images that have since come to my mind in sleep and awake, Harriet's muffled yell, a struggle, the dismal sound of a body hitting water, I do not know, Mr. Newcomb, who was guilty in his death. I found myself tired to the point of exhaustion. I decided to stay our course to Bennett, where I could rest and consider the state of my mind. Stobart seemed to understand this, and without a word, assisted me in steering to the coast. We reached the coast in a short time, and lifted the now-prone and sleeping form of Officer Chip to land, leaving him to rest a while upon a pile of coats. As I sat myself down on the stones to rest, Stobart looked across at me and spoke. As he did so, I felt a chill run down my spine. My suspicions that he was, in some fashion, overemphasizing the enthusiasm and emotion which had been so prominent in his voice were proved entirely accurate. His voice was more than cold, more than discompassionate. It was completely devoid of anything that would mark it as the voice of a man. Flat and monotonous, the words hung in the air, and I remember with complete clarity what he said to me. Mr. Godwin. I am aware you have little control of what happens next. For that reason alone do we apologize for what may soon occur. His next words seemed directed not at me, but into the space above us, seemingly at nothing. I had hoped you would not feel the need to impede me. But very well, do what you think you must. With that, Stobart swiftly turned and strode away. For my own part, I was confused as to what action I should take, if any. I had no understanding as to what was occurring around me, and Stobart's words did little to ease my bafflement. As I pondered my situation with no small amount of aggravation, I felt to my eternal horror the return of that blinding headache. This time I did nothing to fight it, as I believe this approach may lessen the sting. It did not do so. When I awoke, as I say, I was standing, stiff and with some discomfort, at the cliffside where only a short while ago I had been discovered by my dear friend Henry Wilford. Where I had then been stood lay Stobart, reaching awkwardly for what I knew must be the small crevice in the rock upon the face. 
He gasped with relief and stood, clutching something I believe he had pulled free from the hollow in the rock. It was small and it shined in the light. I recognized it to be a small blade, a blunt instrument akin to a butter knife. Stobart turned and I saw that he looked suddenly and greatly unwell. His face was pale and he shivered slightly as if unsteady in his balance. Having apparently been aware of my presence already, he spoke once more in that hatefully flat tone, albeit with the slightest of trembling. This will not have any great impact on you, I regret to say. I may have to resort to more traditional means. With this, Stobart lurched forward and fell upon me with the knife. Whatever sickness afflicted him made him slow and stumbling, allowing me time to reach out, grasping firmly in my hand the wrist of the hand which held the knife over his head as he tried to strike downwards. I released him and shoved backwards, fumbled around my belt to draw my small hunting knife. His demeanor, still completely empty of any emotion, even rage, changed nothing for the sight of my blade, clearly sharper and cleaner than his own. I stepped to meet him, and as he approached me, I moved my knife to strike at him. You must understand, Mr. Newcomb, that I am not a violent man. I intend not to grievously wound Stobart even then, but to discourage him and to defend my own life. But as I swung to slash at his hand and knock the blunted knife from his grasp, I felt my arm act of its own accord, jerking forward. I tore deeply into his chest, a long slanting rip from below the heart nearly to his hip. But even with this most severe injury, Stobart did not scream or fall back, not even did his countenance of detached calmness shift with pain. He struck me with his free left hand, and the back of his hand connected with my face with such a stunning strength that I was lifted and thrown a yard, sprawling along the rock and earning myself several contusions. I looked up to see Stobart advancing upon me with a terrible patience. Black, viscous, and dark blood flowed impossibly slowly from the wound in his chest. I have seen damage like it done to men, and I have seen those men collapsed in seconds. His paleness of face and shivering had subsided little, but... I could do nothing to stop his approach. The blow he had struck me with what I am certain to have been unnatural strength had dizzied and blurred my vision and pressed the air from my lungs. He paused and sheathed that curious blunt knife, picking up and balancing in his hand my hunting knife, which had fell from my grip the instant I had been debilitated. He paused above me and, as he began to lower himself to me to slit my throat with my own blade, there was something which loomed unsteadily behind my adversary and then a tremendous crack. Stobart listed slowly, toppling to the ground. Above him, still clutching in both hands the large rock he had used to attack Stobart, was Officer Chip. As I stood, he began to tell me of how he had awoken, seen the two of us had departed and came to search for us. He had seen Stobart attack me and thought to help by felling the man from behind. I stopped him as he spoke. I noted that which I could not believe, and yet that which I expected. Stobart was not dead. His head was dashed at the crown, a wide and deep cave in his skull, but he lived. Already the seep of black blood from what we had thought a mortal wound was slowing, and he was beginning to twitch. I felt the onset of another bout of pain besetting me, and I told Chip to get back to the boat. Between the pain expressed on my face and the strain in my voice, he stumbled away, and I closed my eyes once more. When I awoke, I was stood over Stobart's corpse. In my right hand was the blunt knife he had retrieved. Mr. Newcomb, 
I will not recount the details of the dismemberment and the bizarre torture I believe myself to have inflicted upon whatever thing Stobart may have been. Suffice to say, it was quite enough to kill him. I washed the blood from my hands and returned to the coast, where Officer Chip and I wordlessly prepared the cutter to depart once more. Once we were well on our way and out on the glass face of the sea, I hurled that blunted knife from me and I prayed that no man would ever see it, let alone the heinous act of having to use it. The rest of this tale is one you may be able to summarize through guesswork. Officer Chip, already weakened, succumbed to the elements shortly after we had made landfall in Russia. I myself fared only slightly better. I arrived here to the settlement to find you and have little time left before I suffer Chip's fate myself. I urge you once more to most highly commend the actions of all men aboard that ship. I do not now consider Stobart to have been a man. What man bleeds a blood that is as dark to be black, Mr. Newcomb? What man can weather a slash to the chest and the caving of the head two mortal wounds in as many minutes? Whatever spectre, angel or devil it may have been that took control of my body and senses, I harbour it no ill will. If it rid the world of a creature like Stobart, I accept whatever cost it may incur upon me. Yours in faith, Samuel Godwin. End reading. I remember, a short while ago, I was surprised to learn that this madness stretched back to the 1980s. Well, I was only off by a century, right? Could be worse. I've authenticated this statement in every way that I can. At the very least, Newcomb did submit it with his book. Godwin did exist, and his death is reported as being due to malnutrition, exhaustion, and exposure. All dates match up. The bodies of Charles Chip and Michael Stobart were not recovered. The same goes for their cutter, which Newcomb claimed to have left in Boulogne on its own. If I was to hypothetically accept that there are things outside of what we can see that are manipulating us into pawns in some project, and I don't accept that, I'm simply theorising, this statement would then lead me to believe that they have refined their methods in the last two centuries. The sleepwalking impulse evident with Wyatt and Rodriguez is nowhere to be seen in this, and is, to be fair, perhaps a more sustainable and less devastating method than the traumatic wrenching Samuel Godwin endured. It's also entirely possible that the knife Godwin fought Stobart over is a hint of what the hunters in the Rodriguez case were seeking, or the cargo that Wyatt was shipping. As for the unknown man who pointed me in the direction of this case, I really fail to see why. It tells me very little concrete information, and it isn't exactly a huge advance in my work that I can see. At least now I know for sure that I'm being monitored and that my concerns were not paranoia. I forwarded copies of these tapes to Tom. It might be the case that my new helper is not the only one keeping an eye on me, and it would be unwise of me to assume any others will be quite this benevolent. End tape. Hey there, it's Evan. Thanks for listening to this episode, and here's a friendly reminder, you should definitely go check out Little Town of Rainbow. Anyway, you can follow us on Instagram and Tumblr at Outside Tapes Podcast as always, and again, if you did enjoy this and you want to see more of this, then you should tell people about this, get this show out there and attract more listeners for us. Thank you for listening, and I think that's it from us, so we'll talk to you in two weeks' time. See you then, and thanks.
The Outside Tapes is a podcast created, written, and produced by Liam Brett and Evan Daly. This episode featured Evan Daly as Alfie Greaves. Thanks for listening.